If we, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to the Old Testament again, to the book of Esther. The book of Esther. It seems to me as I study and prepare for the book of Esther that things get deeper and deeper and deeper and more serious. And tonight we want to consider together providential planning, providential planning. So we'll read the chapter, chapter 5 of the book of Esther. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart, But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. May God bless to us the reading of his word. One of the things about chapter 5 is it begins from chapter 4, of course, and ends in verse 14 with an incomplete thing. Okay? It's not finished. You, your expectations about what is to come are raised. What is Haman up to? and Will he be able to accomplish his purposes against Mordecai? Now, the book of Esther uh, raises for us some very complex and difficult questions. For example... God is not mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther, yet we are all convinced without a shadow of a doubt that God is everywhere 
in the book of Esther. That is for simple, the simple reason that there are things that are going on in the book of Esther, the way it is structured, the way it's laid out, the way the story unfolds, that remind us of the activity and the action of God. That God is doing something even though God is not mentioned at all in the book of Esther. And this raises this very complex question for Christians, how does God work? How does God work? Uh, it is not a question of how does God control all things? Because we know how God controls all things. He controls all things, everything, sovereignly. Because He's sovereign. Because He has the power and the ability to do it. And we would be right if we answered like that. That would be the right answer, according to the sovereignty of God. What we mean by that is that God has determined all things whatsoever that come to pass. But even more particularly when we say that God has determined all things that come to pass, we mean by that that He has freely determined all those things so that unchangeably they come to pass. God's not changing uh, anything in His purpose or plan because God is unchangeable and He doesn't change His mind. What He has decreed, what He has determined is eternal and is sovereign and lasts forever. In other words, God's will, God's purpose, God's word is not subject to outside interference. It's not subject to the will of man. We do not control God. We do not get God to change His mind. And, obviously, uh, uh, and oftentimes the question is, well, why do we pray? Because obviously we say to ourselves, when I pray, I'm asking God to do things. Perhaps He has to change His mind. No, God never changes His mind. God ordains our praying that our praying accomplish His will, ultimately. So that even in our prayers, God accomplishes that which He has always intended and that which He has purposed. And what God has done freely and unchangeably is according to as the confession says, to his most holy counsel and his most wise will. Now this is an interesting concept because this determination, this sovereign determination, decree by God, has two results or two consequences. Number one, we can never accuse God as being the author of sin, even though we understand that sin is ordained, ordained of God for his purpose. It's beyond us. It's mysterious. So the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden is no surprise to God. He has purposed it, he has determined it, he has decreed the beginning from the end, so Adam will fall in the Garden of Eden. Yet Adam falls by his own accountability, his own responsibility, and God is not the author of the sin of Adam at all. But God has determined all things. But we must be careful to preserve the character of God and the nature of God against the accusation that this makes God the author of sin. No, it does not make, the God, make God the author of sin at all. Not only that, but God, in determining all things, does no violence to the will of man. So men and women and boys and girls do their thing. And God does no violence to the will, but whatever they do, ultimately is determined by God for the glory of God. That's why we, we, we always come to the end. Why does God do what He does? He does what He does for His own purpose and His own glory. So how does God work? That's the question. How does God work? doesn't matter if it's the book of Esther or the book of Genesis or the book of Revelation. How does God work? Not just sovereignly, but God works through causes. He establishes what we call secondary causes. 
God is the first cause of all things. He cannot be otherwise. Uh, otherwise, He's not God, of course. He is the first cause. But He establishes all things, second causes, to bring about what He has decreed in the first, as the first cause or the end that He has decided to bring to completion. Or to put it very simply, God has ordained the means to achieve the end. That's it. God has ordained all the means, not some, but all the means to get His end, what He has decreed and what He has determined. And when I read the book of Esther, <clears throat> that's the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, God has determined an end. But God uses means, secondary means and causes that are all throughout the book to achieve His end and his purpose. And Esther, of course, as you see in chapter 4, verse 16, she has made her decision. You remember how Mordecai had urged her, you've got to go to King Xerxes. You've got to tell him about the plight of our people. You've got to, you've got to reveal this purpose and plan of Haman's so that it can be reversed. You've got to, you, you will have to take your life into your own hands. And eventually comes to the realization, yeah, that's true. If I perish, I perish. And so, at the end of verse 16, she has made that decision. If I perish, I perish. And as a result of having made that decision at the end of chapter 4, in chapter 5, she's going to go to the king. And she's going to present her petition to the king on behalf of Mordecai, on behalf of herself, and of course on behalf of all her people, the Jewish people in Persia. Now, you know, in the Bible... In Scripture, we are told on a number of occasions, or we're, we are introduced to this phrase, the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. The law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be changed, which cannot be altered. You read about, for example, in Daniel and the lion's den, right? Daniel chapter 6 and verse 8, verse 12, verse 15. So much so that Darius the Mede, the king, who was very reluctant to even enact the law of the Medes and the Persians, was reminded by those wicked wise men that the law of the Medes and the Persians, Darius, cannot be changed. Therefore, Daniel into the lion's den. And of course, God delivered Daniel, right? So the, the law of the Medes and Persians went by the wayside. But this phrase is interesting because you find it in the book of Esther. For instance, in the very first chapter, it is used in the... the, the, uh, the uh, I want to say the banishment of Queen Vashti, that they enact a law that would remove her from being the queen, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. So there's no coming back for Queen Vashti. She's done. She's gone. Okay? That's, what, that's what it means. When the, the law of the Medes and the Persians is invoked, there's no changing it. There's no altering it. But the laws of the Medes and the Persians are man-made laws, right? This we must understand. They are man-made laws, or to put it in the context of the theology that we're talking about here, they are secondary causes. That even the laws of men, the laws of women, the laws of our world, whatever it is that man makes as a law, it is always going to be a secondary cause, a means to God to accomplish his purpose and His will. And only God, by the way, can order all the secondary means. That's a f I want to say that's a frightful concept because it's beyond my comprehension. 
Okay, that all the, the secondary avenues of my life, which interweave, by the way, with your life and your life with mine and each other's and all of those things, and with the world when we go to work tomorrow, all of the weaving of those events are ordered by God. Some of them turn out for evil, and some of them turn out for blessing and for good, but all are under the sovereign purposes and the sovereign hand of God. They are secondary causes and only God can order them to be so. Why is that? Because God is the only one who is supreme in creation, supreme in sustaining His creation, and supreme in ruling over His creation. Even if God gives His authority to an earthly king or queen, it is God ultimately who is sovereign and God who is in charge. And God works in and through and above and beyond all of creaturely means, all of our decisions, all of our purposes. God works completely above all of those things. And this is the doctrine then of God's active universal sovereignty, which is such a comfort to me as a Christian and ought to be such a comfort to any Christian that God controls all things. God accomplishes His purpose and His will and His end. And God does it by working in and through and with creatures such as myself and ourselves in such a way that every creature, every person also engages in work because we are accountable to God and responsible to God. And when we engage, ultimately God's will is always accomplished. God's will by Himself for his glory. William Ames, one of the very early Puritans, said that God disposes all things sweetly. Sweetly. Because you might, you might think in your mind that God is an ogre or God is, God is some strange wild beast who just kills and determines at whim. No, that's not God at all. God disposes all things, all events, sweetly, beautifully, in harmony with His nature, in harmony with His intended glory and His end. And Wilhelmus R. Brockel, the great Dutch theologian, he said this, he said, God sustains all of us in each of our own particular existence so that we move and work in a manner that is unique to us individually. God sustains us like that. Now that's deep, right? I mean, this is not shallow theology. This is deep stuff, right? So God's activity always precedes my activity. Now, you know, I make a lot of decisions. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. I'm always making decisions. So are you. In fact, tomorrow you're going to go to work and you're going to make decisions, right? What time shall I get up? What clothes shall I wear? What time should I leave? It doesn't matter. There's just a plethora of decisions that you have to make. Do not think for one single moment that God is abstract or absent from those decisions. Because to make God absent from those mundane decisions is to eliminate God from your life and from all that you are engaged in. So by acting, I mean, or by activity, I mean my acting, my actions, your actions, your acting. As Paul said in Acts chapter 17 on Mars Hill, right? to the Athenian philosophers, those human wise people who were fools, right? As he spoke to them, he says, we live and we move and we only have our being in God. 
The only reason we exist tonight is because of God. The only reason you're here is because of God. God sovereignly moving, working. Apart from God, by the way, you and I have no existence. We exist because God has determined that we exist. God has made us in His own image, in His own likeness, so that we might now, even though we have sinned and rebelled, in coming to faith in Christ, might be restored to that image that was marred and broken and defiled and defaced by our sin, so that we might be to the praise of His glory and His grace. This is God working. God sovereignly working. So, all secondary means and all secondary causes are established by God. Not by me. I make, I make decisions, but God establishes all the ends of those decisions. And God brings all of those causes to an end. One of the great theologians, like Calvin, was a man called Francis Turretin. He's an Italian. He came maybe two generations or a generation after Calvin and this is what he said about providence. And I just read this this afternoon. I was just looking through stuff and working again, thinking about these things. And I came across this in Francis Turretin. He said, providence embraces three things. First of all, it embraces the knowledge of the mind of God. Secondly, it embraces the decree of the will of God. And thirdly, it embraces the efficacious administration of the things that are determined in the decree of God. Or to put it in very simple English, number one, God foresees His foreknowledge, God provides His providence, and God procures the end of the thing He has determined in His decree, which is His providential acting and accomplishment of all things. And that's right. Francis Turretin is exactly right. That is the providence, the sovereign providence of God. So all of the secondary purposes, then I say, are established by God Himself. He brings all the causes that He has established to the end to accomplish His end, His purpose, His goal. Now you only have to read the life of Abraham, or the life of Isaac, or in particular the life of Jacob, to determine that, to find that out in the Bible. Or the life of Moses, or the life of David. Just choose a saint, or the life of Job, for example. To find out that God has determined all things. And even here, tonight, as we read the book of Esther, Esther herself, and even ourselves. To put it this way, the God who worked in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob's life, whom the Bible often refers to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the same God who works in my life and works in your life. The same God. Unchanged over the centuries, over the millennia. The same God, because He's unchangeable, who is still accomplishing His purpose to bring a people to Himself that you see in Abraham, that you see in Isaac, that you see in Jacob, with all of the vicissitudes of their life, all of the trials, all of the topsy-turvy events of their life that they seem to sometimes think was in their power, and yet it was God working all things out. Or think about Joseph, right? Joseph is the supreme example of that, being in the hand of God, God bringing about purpose for himself, for that young man as well. When I think like that, because the Bible tells me these things, I discover that my life, your life, has purpose and meaning. That we're not just 
creatures of the dust or creatures of some evolutionary uh, process. I mean, what utter nonsense, right? We are the creatures of God, designed in the image of God, made from the very hands of God Himself. So, when God provides you and me in our lives with purpose and meaning, what do I mean by that? First of all, when I say when He provides my life with meaning and your life with meaning, means I can know who I am. And when it says, when we say that He provides us with purpose, I'm not left to myself. I mean, isn't that the great thing, right? I can know who I am, and then I discover who I am, and it's shocking, because I'm so vile and sinful and depraved. And then I discover that God hasn't left me alone, and that God will hunt me down to bring me to Christ, to save me by His grace. And so I learn about myself, get to know who I am, really and truly, and then I discover that in Christ... Such a glorious experience, isn't it? Such a wonderful life. The purposes of God in saving sinners. So all the regenerate, all the believers, and all the unregenerate, the wicked, the unbelievers, as the Bible says, are all within God's purpose and God's plan. We're not passive objects like pieces on a chessboard, right? Oh, well, I decide to move there. No, I won't make that move. I'll make this move. No, we're not like that. We're not passive and just, when you move me, you move me. No. We are required responsibly, accountably to God to do what He requires of each of us. So if, if Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that is not an option. You might say, well, I do love God. Yeah, but do you love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And if that's not enough, Jesus then says, and the second commandment is just like the first, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Just like the first commandment. And on those two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. And so what a standard, right, is established for me that I'm accountable, that I'm responsible to, that I can't even begin to live up to because I'm sinful. Requiring the grace of God and the mercy of God in my life and, and so on. I am, I am in those things, wrestling with those things, fighting sin and all of that. And God is not outside of all of those things. He's right there with us. He's right there with us. Mr. Burkov, Louis Burkov says that every deed is in its entirety both a deed of God and of ourselves. It is a deed of God because nothing is independent of God's will and all things are determined by the will of God. And it is a deed of ourselves, a deed of man, because the self-activity of man is always realized only by God and through God. You see, you can't get away from God. So I want to think about secondary causes for a moment. There are three kinds. You're saying to yourself, when are you going to get to Esther? Well, that may take an hour. We'll get there. Secondary causes, there are three, right? The first one is there are necessary secondary causes. Necessary secondary causes. What do we mean by that? There are laws of nature. It's just going to happen because it's a law of nature, right? It's necessary secondary causes. Secondly, there are free secondary causes. That's the choice that you make or angels make. Right? Decisions that you make. Thirdly, there are contingent secondary causes. That's what people might refer to as accidents, random events, chaotic events. 
and so on. We, of course, know there are no such thing as accidents because God's in sovereign control of all things. You can die by being hit by a car out there, but as far as God's concerned, that's not an accident. That's a merciful thing because He's good, right? He's gracious to us. So the confession, 1689 confession, puts it like this. God orders all things to fall out according to the nature of secondary causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. And that's why I said there are necessary and free and contingent second causes. And all of these secondary causes, they come to pass immutably, they come to pass infallibly, for the simple reason that God is the first cause. And so they happen. So this is how you should read all that occurs in your Bible, and by the way, all that occurs in the world. Now, you know, we get a lot of sick news coming to us. I mean, just things are bad, right? Things are in the hands of God. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. Things are in the hands of God. Even though chaos and depravity exists all around us, things are still under the sovereign and can only be under the sovereign control of God. That's how you have to read the book of Esther. Thinking about God like that. And it seems to me that when I read the book of Esther, I can sense that, spiritually speaking. I, I, I can see that this is what's happening in the book of Esther. It's like reading the book of Job, and you discover that, well, Satan has, has orchestrated this devastation upon Job. And yet, it's not Satan, but God, who has done this to Job. So that you have, when you get to the end of the book, you find the repentance of Job. My eyes now see, and I get it, he says. So I repent in sackcloth and ashes. And I put a hand over my mouth, and I say, be quiet, Job, and let God be God. And that's what all of us must face, and all of us must come to. So when you read the book of Esther, you discover that Xerxes, he does his thing, doesn't he? I mean, he's the king of Persia. Ahasuerus, Xerxes, he does his thing. You discover this man, Haman, the Agagite, oh, he's got his plans. He's got his purposes. He wants to destroy all the Jews simply because Mordecai refuses to bow down to him. So his big plan is I'll take out all Jews, every Jew, on one single day, and I get Mordecai. That's all I want is Mordecai. So all the plans of Haman. Well, what about Mordecai? He's got his plans. He's even, in chapter 4, been telling Esther about, you need to do something. You need to go to the king. So he's been thinking about this. Now he's getting Esther to think about it so that Esther will go to the king. But behind it, and in it all, whether it's Xerxes, Haman, Mordecai, Esther, or yourself, it's always God. And unless you see God like this, you are aimless. And I would be aimless. Without meaning, without purpose. Conjuring up perhaps, some, some way to explain my existence, some way to, to demonstrate that I am of significance. And yet the only way we can determine that we are of significance is by believing what God has said we're like, and what God has said we're done, and what God is making us to be like. So God calls upon you and God calls upon me. To be responsible, to act, to plan. And even though God is not mentioned in Esther, how could you miss him? He's everywhere, right? He's everywhere in Esther. 
God requires then that I use my abilities, I use my gifts, I use my opportunities, whatever they are that come my way, that I make use of them. As far as God is concerned, I should make use of them uh, uh, responsibly and for a good and godly purpose. And we should, and we must know at the same time, that when I'm supposed to be like that, that behind that is God actively working and pursuing His glorious accomplishing will for my life and for everybody else. It's such an encouragement to me, you know, because we all work, well, not all of us, some of us have slowed down a bit, that's okay. But work is what God has made us for. Labor, work, is a pre-fall of man institution ordained by God. Adam worked the garden. Adam tended the garden. That was his labor. That was his work. That what, that's what gave him purpose. That's what gave him meaning. And work is that which gives all of us purpose and meaning. You get up in the morning, you have something to accomplish, something to do, and something to be done. But what you should know is that when you are about your work, God is also about His work. Accomplishing His purpose in your working. So Esther 5, chapter 5, provides us with Esther's plans and Esther's maneuvering to make her plea to the king. That's verses 1 through 7, right? And also, you don't know this at the stage, but you get the idea that this is where it's going because of the, the plans of Haman, that she wishes to make an accusation against Haman, which is going to come out in the later chapters. So how will she do this, right? What is her plan? So... Look at verse 4 of chapter 5. She says, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. That's her plan. Food. You say, well, what kind of plan is this? Right? A feast. Right? Her plan is a feast. Now, let, let me remind you from the introduction that feasts are big in Esther. Okay, you, the, the opening chapter, chapter 1, uh, Xerxes has given a feast, a party, for 180 days. It's a massive feast that he's given. So you have Xerxes' feast in chapter 1 and 2, and then you have Esther's feasts, and then later, at the end of the book, you have the Feast of Purim. So the book of Esther is filled with these feasts. Now, you'll notice at the end of chapter 4, in verse 16, Esther has said that she will fast, she will not drink or eat for three days and three nights. Well, those have come to an end because look at verse 1 okay, of chapter 5. On the third day. So the three days of fasting have ended. And now on the third day, she puts on her royal robe. She acts with purpose. So notice, notice her strategy. Okay, She dresses in her royal robes, verse 1. What does that mean? She dresses like a queen. Okay. This is her strategy. She dresses like a queen. Number two, verse one, she enters the inner court near the quarters of King Xerxes, and Xerxes just happens to be sitting on his royal throne. Okay. But you know, it's not just happens, right? So there he is. And you notice the use of the word royal. She put on her royal robes. The king is sitting on his royal throne. So she's relying on Xerxes' position or Xerxes' response to royalty. There's a very wise woman at this stage now. She's learned a number of things about Xerxes, the things he values, the things he thinks about that are important to Xerxes, his kingdom, for example. 
his kingship, his ruling over the kingdom of Persia. It's important to Xerxes. So, this is something that every ancient king would treasure and value. Now, you know, today we have modern princes and modern kings and queens, right? And we've just had a, we just had a new king in England, King Charles III. And that, that king has two boys. And one of those boys gives every indication of wanting to fulfill the royal ambition. And the other one, he just seems to complain. Wants nothing to do with it. Two, two vastly different approaches to royalty, right? The one values and the other seems to not value. But every ancient king held his kingdom precious to himself because he was sole ruler. It gave him power, gave him prestige, and so on. And you will see this, by the way, Lord willing, next week when we come to chapter 6 and he's dealing with Mordecai. Royalty, as you know, has privileges. Whether you've earned them or not, they're given because of royalty. Xerxes, I think, would be the first to recognize that kind of thing, royalty. I think that's what Esther is banking on. She is banking on the fact that he treasures his royal position, his royal power, his royal throne. So she dresses like a royal queen because she knows that that's what will get Xerxes' attention. So we notice that Esther has her plans, right? Now she's made those plans and thought about them over the three days of fasting based on her words, if I perish, I perish. So her if I perish, I perish words have given way now to a strategy, to some formulation of a plan that she now, in chapter 5, is going to seek to bring about. She's thought about this. Now let me remind you, back in chapter 3, the Edict of Haman, right, was written on the 13th day of the first month, which is the evening of Passover. Okay, so now you have to know that in the book, and we've talked a little bit about that. And no doubt, the events of chapter 4, that we just finished a few weeks ago, are on Passover day itself. So that when she says... I and my women will fast for three days and three nights. That's the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So that in the middle of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, on the third day, as chapter 5 verse 1 says, she will bring about her plan or put it into operation. Now that's in the background. Okay, doesn't say anything about that except that the 13th day of the first month, we know, is the eve of Passover. And the 14th day, of course, of the first month is Passover itself. And Passover, of course, is so significant, isn't it, in the Old Testament, because it is a reminder of tragedy, and it is a reminder of deliverance. So the author of the book of Esther, the writer of the book of Esther, is situating these events, which they happen to be like, in the plan and providence of God. He is giving them to us in this way, so that we might be reminding ourselves that this is set in the context of tragedy, and of con the context of deliverance. So she dresses in her royal robes. But it's clear that her external appearance masks or covers her internal turmoil and sorrow and grief, right? And once more we're reminded, I think, that Esther is truly changing, turning into a remarkable individual who has thought a, a lot of things. Years before she gained the throne, she won the favor and approval of all, of Xerxes himself, and now years later she is a mature a maturing woman, and she has come up with a plan. 
Now look, to stand in the inner court in the palace of the king is a violation of the law of the Medes and the Persians. You can't do that. You can't go out there and stand. Hi Xerxes, I'm here. Can't do that, right? You go and stand out there without the king's approval or invitation, you're dead. That's the law of the Medes and the Persians. That's why she said, if I perish, I perish. Because she knew the law of the Medes and the Persians in approaching the king. So to stand there in the inner court, in the palace of the king, is a violation of this law. But, but if you were Xerxes, and you're just sitting there on your throne, what would you see when you look down your throne into the inner court? What would you see? He would see a queen. He would see a queen dressed in royalty, in power, the symbols of power. And he would look at that, and he would be affected by that. He would have to be affected by that. And I think that's exactly what happened. Do you notice chapter 5 verse 2? When the king saw Queen Esther. Don't miss Queen Esther. Not Esther, but Queen Esther. You see? It's not just Esther who's become a queen. But now he sees Queen Esther. And I think as far as human nature is concerned, or as far as our common sense is concerned, Xerxes is simply responding naturally and favorably with what he sees with his eyes. He sees his queen. He sees royalty. He sees power. The symbols of his power. And he connects to them immediately. Now, I don't know how, what Xerxes was doing lounging on his throne. Okay, I, don't, I don't know what he was doing there. Maybe he was in a bad mood, right? I don't know. But the moment he sees Queen Esther, verse 2, he's relieved. And he responds naturally and favorably. The Bible says she won favor in his sight and he held out the golden scepter to her. You can come. You can approach. The very thing she was concerned about. Everybody knows unless the king holds the golden scepter, you're done for. How do you see that? I see that as all the secondary causes in action, working. And yet I know that when all of those secondary ideas and causes and plans are operating, God is accomplishing His will and His purpose. You see, the Christian experience, the Christian life, is not, it's not another religion. It's not another faith. I mean, let's be honest, Christianity is not another faith. Christianity is the faith. Do you know why? Because Jesus said, only Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So it's not one faith among many faiths. Those are not faiths. That's falsehood. That's idolatrous. All other religion, false, as far as the Bible is concerned. Because there's only one God. This God, the God of Scripture, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, only one God. He is supreme. He is who He says He is. And so, there is not many faiths, no. There's one faith. We contend as Christians for our most holy faith. We're not concerned about other faiths because they're not faiths. They are the trust in idols. The fragile fragility of the human heart coming up with its own ideas about what can I worship? Because man must worship something. He's made like that. He's made in the image of God. He's made to have relationship with God. No, this is, uh, this is the glorious, magnificent, 
demonstration of the sovereignty of God in our lives, in Esther's life and over Xerxes. 2,500 years ago. So Xerxes is a king, right? We've, looked a lot, we've, we've talked a lot about Xerxes as a king. He immediately recognizes that for Esther to be in the inner court is significant, right? I mean, you appear there. So he knows that she's come because there's some pressing need. That's why he says in verse 3, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request, right? And then the absolute guarantee. Look what he says. It shall be given you even up to half my kingdom. This phrase, uh, up to half my kingdom, is what we call the formula for gen of generosity. It's just a formula of generosity. He's in a generous mood. I'm going to give you whatever it is up to half my kingdom, which is liberal, right? Proverbs 21.1 says that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and the Lord turns it wherever he wills. It's God turning the heart of Xerxes sitting on his throne. So he says, what is your request? Because that's royal protocol. What is your request? Seven times in the book of Esther. What is your request? Now, half the kingdom is not to be taken literally, right? Because if half the kingdom is given, Xerxes doesn't have a kingdom. Doesn't have a throne. Right here. Right now. If he gives away half his kingdom. So it doesn't mean that. What it means is just a promise of acceptance and a promise for provision. That I will do something for you. Even up to the value of like half my kingdom. You remember how King Herod used the same phrase when Salome, the daughter of Herodias, danced and pleased him. And he said, ask whatever you will, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. She said, give me the head of John the Baptist. Right? I would have asked for half the kingdom. Right? Wouldn't you? I would have asked for half the kingdom. We need guys like John. Keep him alive. So what is Esther's request? Well, surely her request is going to be to plead for her people, right? I mean, Xerxes says, what is your request? I'm, I'm in a generous mood up to half my kingdom. Ask what you will, is what he's essentially saying. And I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. But instead, she has an ordinary request, right? I've prepared a feast for you and Haman. Please come. Some people might see that as delaying tactics because of fear. This delaying tactics because of fear, I think this is just her strategy. Because by inviting Haman to the feast along with Xerxes, she puts Haman under some obligation not only to herself, but also to Xerxes himself because he's the king. And to eat the actual meal to be there. In the background then in verse 5 is this feast, right? Come to my feast. So instead of telling Xerxes about her people and the plight of her people and the kingdom of the Jews, she delays her petition. Look at verse 6, 7, and 8. As they were eating, drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What's your wish? It shall be granted to you. What's your request? Even to half my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. She says, My wish and my request is if I found favor, if it please your king to grant my request and fulfill my, grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast I've prepared for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Wow, what a letdown. Hmm, another feast. But Xerxes doesn't think like that. No, 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 no. Xerxes thinks, this is great. I've just had a great meal. I'm chilling out with Haman, number two in the kingdom, and my queen, Esther. And I'm drinking wine after the meal, so he's just relaxed. 
And she wants to do the same for me tomorrow. I'm in. I'll be there. And Haman, you'll be there as well. Right? I mean, this is what, from simple perspective, from a human perspective, that's, that's what we see, right? But what about Haman? Ah, his pride is stroked, isn't it? His ego is boosted. And it appears, doesn't it, that, that Haman doesn't know that Esther is Jewish. Because he's going to boast about the fact that even Esther invited me to the feast tomorrow. So her identity is not revealed at this stage. So he goes out. This is Haman. Look at verse 9. He went out that day joyful and glad of heart, but suddenly, huh, guess what he sees? Mordecai sitting in the king's gate. And there's Mordecai just working away. Probably looked up, saw Haman and just, oh, whatever. Ignored him, which he's been doing, right? Mordecai's just ignored Haman. And Haman is filled with wrath and anger against Mordecai. Because you see, Haman believes he has reached the zenith of his power. He's invincible. Even Esther has invited me to the feast tomorrow. I'm in. I'm in. And he recounts, right, you see his exploits in verse 10 and 11. Back at his family, his, his friends and his wife, Zeresh, he recounts to them, verse 11, all the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons and the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him, and so on. And even Queen Esther, verse 12, let no one come but me to the feast, and so on. And tomorrow it's going to happen. So he talks about his riches, he talks about his sons, he talks about his promotions, he talks about his honor, he talks about his advancement. He's untouchable. That's what he thinks. He's untouchable, right? But he also confesses, you notice, that his glory, all of that, his glory... From an earthly perspective, is nothing as long as Mordecai lives. Verse 13, right? As long as Mordecai sits there, it's nothing to me, all of these things. What is that? Isn't that the, the violence of sin raging in the heart? The darkness and the depravity of sin, the sin of man in its destructive power. Because you see, sin has this incredible intoxicating, dulling effect. You engage in sin, it dulls your spiritual life. And this is Haman. He's just dead in trespasses and sins. He's a wicked individual. Sin makes you think more highly of yourself than you really ought to think, right? Sin keeps you ignorant about yourself. You don't really know yourself until you know your sin. Until you know depravity. You don't know anything about yourself. Even Zeresh, his wife, and all of his fam friends, they're heartless. And they're diabolical because they say, build a gallows. Let's take care of Mordecai once and for all. Build a gallows, 50 cubits. Now you all know a cubit, by the way, is 18 inches, generally measured from here to here. That's a cubit. So a foot and a half. 50 cubits, 75 feet tall. I mean, think of a gallows 75 feet. You can't miss it. You can't miss it. It's huge, right? That's what they tell him. This is their advice. And then, listen, Haman, you build the gallows, tomorrow you... Go and see the king and you tell the king that this is the plan and then you go to the feast with Esther and you enjoy it. Be joyful, right? Death and destruction are so easily planned, aren't they? That's what you read. So easily planned. But you notice that Haman now has rushed forward, he's brought forward his plans to destroy Mordecai. Because Mordecai would have been included in the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar, which is still 11 months away. 
That's when all the Jews are going to perish, and Mordecai included. But no, he's now brought Mordecai's death right up to the forefront by constructing the gallows. He's so incited and so incensed at seeing Mordecai that he changes his plans. And what does that teach me? That teaches me that men and women always change their plans and chop and change. But whatever God intends is still always going to happen. No matter our plans, no matter the plans of the wicked, no matter the goals and purposes of evil men and women, God will accomplish his goodwill and his purpose. Job talks about that, right? He talks about the collapse of his own plans. He says in Job 17, my days are past. My plans are broken off the desires of my heart. Psalm 33.10, David says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. That's good to know, by the way. right? Proverbs 16.1, The plans of the heart belong to man. Proverbs 16.3, Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Proverbs 19.21, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Many plans but it's only the purpose of God that will stand. So, let me close. Some lessons for life, right? Number one, God requires you and requires me to make plans, to live life responsibly and accountably, because you know that all circumstances are in His hand. And the outcome of all of them is for His glory, and it's good. How do you believe that? It's faith. Faith always looks to the promises of God. Otherwise, it's not faith. Okay? Faith is that which motivates me and you to say, like Paul said, or like James said, sorry, we will live and we will do this and do that by the will of God. By the will of God. So, if the Lord wills, my plans will come to fruition. If not, the Lord's will will be done. Number two, let's not be afraid then to trust God. If this is true of God, why wouldn't you trust Him? With your entire life, with your entire being, with all your possessions, with who you are, your family, your children, everything. You can give it to Him. Because He's in charge. Because He's sovereign. In spite of opposition, in spite of evil, in spite of sin, in spite of danger, faith always is forward-moving to the end, because behind it are the propelling and compelling promises of God. Pushing, pushing, driving us to His glory, to His end. How can you go wrong if you trust God? You can't. You can never go wrong if you trust God, if you seek His will. How the world reacts, or how the world might react to us, you must leave to God. You try and take things, matters into your own hands and see what happens. Chaos. Just leave it to God. Give it to God. Get about and be on with your good business and work and let God take care of that. Isn't that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3? I mean, here's this golden image, right? Nebuchadnezzar says, right, everybody, when the, when the music plays, you bow down to the image. And so everybody, the music starts playing, and they all bow down, and there's three guys just standing. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And word comes back to Nebuchadnezzar, you know, look, 
Look, Nebuchadnezzar, you said that everybody's got to bow down. Well, there's people in your kingdom, there's three of them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are top guys in the kingdom. They refuse. And you remember how Nebuchadnezzar called them, and he said, look, I'm going to give you an opportunity. When the music sounds, you bow down. Do you know what they said to him? Now, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, let it be known to you that no matter what happens, no matter what you, you do, what your plans or purposes are, we will never bow down to that image. So if, if God delivers us, great. If God doesn't deliver us, great. You see? If God delivers, great. If God doesn't deliver, great. Why? Because God is in charge of it all. What did Nebuchadnezzar do? He was mad, right? Heat the furnace up seven times hotter. Throw them in. He threw them in. Even the guys who threw them in were consumed. And then he was startled and shocked out of his mind because he sees Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego miraculously, supernaturally, in the flames, in the fire, walking. But... The shocking part was there appears to be another person in the fire with them. The son of the gods, Nebuchadnezzar said. It was none other than the son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Come out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Out they hopped. No smell of fire, nothing. God delivered them. And you know what their faith was? If God doesn't deliver us, that's okay with us, because he's good. And if he takes our lives, we're with him. That's good. That's how we're to learn to live, right? How can you go wrong if you trust the Lord like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Number three, you must learn, I must learn, constantly be learning to accept all circumstances that come my way. Now, you know, we get up and uptight about a lot of things every day, right? Things happen to us that we weren't expecting. They throw a curveball, and we complain. It's very difficult not to complain because it's our natural inclination. It's our sinful nature that just wants to complain about whatever is thrown our way. No, instead, all of our circumstances, we must give them to God because God controls them. And that takes, that takes learning and discipline and patience and experience and pain. Why does God control those things? Because all contingencies are in His hand. All of them, right? So this is how you live, and this is how you move, and this is how you have your being in God. This is why Mr. Spurgeon says, if you cease working, you will cease believing. If you cease your responsibility, your accountability to God, you cease to believe in the God who's called you to that. So, I am called, and you are called, to trust the Lord in two ways, savingly and sanctifyingly. I must come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ first. I must believe, trust, savingly. If I haven't trusted savingly, there's no sanctifying. There's no cleansing. There's no ongoing transformation in my life. I need salvation. If I am saved, then I will be sanctified. And that's the process of my life. A life that is saved and that is now lived out sanctifyingly. So I must submit all my plans and all my purposes to the God who determines the end from the beginning. And in that way, I am absolutely safe. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, these glorious truths that we've been talking about tonight. Help us to remind ourselves of them and to think of them. Help us to cast ourselves, first of all, upon Jesus. 
first of all, in coming to him for salvation, believing in his death, his atonement for us, as the only means by which we are justified before you, his righteousness for us. O Father, open our eyes to see Christ and then to see him every day in all of his glory and his beauty. Help us to walk in his ways and in your will. Thank you for these great thoughts that we've had about you. They don't do justice. Forgive me for failing to convey the glory and the beauty that I find in your word. Be merciful to us. Help us to live as we seek to live for your glory. And now may all the glory and all the praise be yours, we pray. And watch over us this week. We have a, a storm that is threatening us. We commend ourselves to you. You control the weather. You're in charge of calamity. You create calamity. You bring deliverance. So we cast ourselves upon you and thank you that you will be controlling all these things for our good. We bless you and we praise you for this Lord's Day and commit ourselves to you now and ask your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.